but you've got to yeah. trust that process. And that's a very different kind of mindset. And, different. And, and then I'll just do it all myself. And everybody tells me I'm great. Obviously it, it's just yeah. different until someone goes through it. This is the e-commerce leader, a show for you, the owner of a thriving online business. In this shorter episode, we bring you our hot takes on topical and central e-commerce subjects, fresh from our expert panel, Chris Green, Jason Miles, Kyle Hamer, and myself, Michael Vizi. Let's jump in. Smart e-commerce operators know that net profit is the lifeblood of a business, but at a small and profitable business than a large one which earns no money. The Profit Habits Workbook by Jason Miles gives you 17 specific proven profit-taking actions. For a limited time, we are sharing this valuable resource with our listeners completely free. Download your 60-page workbook and start making your business more profitable today. Just visit theecommerceleader.com forward slash profit habits. That's theecommerceleader.com forward slash profit habits. Well, ladies and jello spoons, we are back with the e-commerce leader expert panel, Chris Green, Carl Hamer, Jason Miles, and myself, Michael Vizi. Most of them are in the States. I'm over here in London, England, increasingly freezing here. <laughs> and we're going to talk about what's on our minds. So Carl, kick us off. I think you've got something called the S-curve, something Absolutely. about demand. Tell yeah, us. no. The, so the S-curve has been around for a long time in sort of business thinking, project management, and uh, even math. That's essentially something you can graph, but it, it looks literally like an S. It kind of starts out with slow growth, then it has sort of this exponential growth curve in the middle, and then starts to slow down in terms of its growth at the top and flatten out. And the interesting thing about it is it, it's a fractal meaning that it applies both at large scales and small scales, in my opinion, meaning like think about it as a niche and niches start out with a little bit of, you know, early adopters, and then it kind of gets to mass, you know, grow, grow, they pass early adopters to sort of the, the second stage, and then you get sort of mass adoption and then sort of maturity. And so I would say niches are like that. I'd say products also go through that same cycle. And so what got me thinking about it was I saw this stat that said that 65 to 75 it's 65 to 75 percent cheaper to duplicate a product than it is to generate one from scratch like to develop one to create one to kind of innovate and so it kind of got me thinking about that s curve and sort of business and product development and, and really picking the niche that you want to be in if you if you're not already in one or you're going to expand your business into a new one where is it best to sort of enter that s curve is it better to be at the beginning where you can potentially have some early mover advantage, which there's disadvantage and pros and cons to that. Or is it better to be sort of in the growth phase when you're going to scale and you're stepping in front of demand? You know, it's like, is it better to be in front of demand or before demand to establish and really build your brand yeah. and accomplish that? So that's really, it's up for my discussion. I'm okay. just kind of putting it out there for people. I think it'd be an interesting conversation. You want our. Uh, yeah, opinions want, on what, yeah, what, I, I what the, is best. Yeah, I want the feedback from the wisdom of the crowd. Okay, yeah. uh, I'll give you my two cents. I think it depends on your personality type. I think some people are cloners. Yeah, you know, like in Star Wars, just right. they can clone the, the the stormtroopers, and some people are really good at that. You know, they'll see a, a Gen One or Gen Two product, and they'll just see how they can make it prettier, shinier, happier, better, newer, and they'll take a whack at that level of it, but they could never, ever in a million years come up with generation one of it. But there are other people who are more on, I would say, say the 
artistic, you know, open side to creativity that are the originalists and their best work is going to be done coming up with something new and proving it. I didn't, you know, I wanted to sell online for 10 years and I couldn't figure out a product, but then cinnamon came up with a product and then I just was the helper. I was just the marketer, you know? And when I reflect back on that, t- it was a whole decade, literally 98 to 2008. It wasn't that I didn't have ideas. It just, I just couldn't execute at that B1 or Gen 1 position. And so I think it depends on your personality, I guess is my yeah. response. No, that's good. Yeah, yeah Jason, I was going to say the exact same thing. Like there you, you go. Have, you have to know yourself yeah. um, in the sense of like what you like doing. And like for me personally, like if I had to go back in time, I probably couldn't describe this, but looking back now, I can be like, oh, I definitely like, I, I enjoy the first mover advantage. I like finding new things that I personally get excited about. And the fact that we have social media where I can share my personal excitement, that's something like, guys, have you heard of this FBA thing? Like, like, you know how fun it was to be like the first guy to be talking about FBA and like how amazing it was to be like, dude, all our inventory is now prime eligible. Like, do you get how big of a deal that is? And a lot of people are like, no, that's, I can shit myself and all this stuff. And then merch by Amazon and self-publishing and all these things. I'm very excited about those things. You know, when they come out, once they're mature and it's like, oh, right, here's how you can use this mature platform to do these, you know, standard practices and do all the things. Sorry, boring or me to tear it. Not just personally boring, but like, that's just not what I would say my personal strengths are. So I'm not looking for something to go in and be like, oh, I can do, you know, some standard operating procedures around this topic. Like, yeah, I guess I can, but like, it's not as interesting or as yeah. fun or as attractive as like, wait a minute, guys, Kyle, have you seen this? You're Imagine an original. This and yeah. this, mm-hmm. no one's done that before. And it's a massive opportunity. And now you're excited. Right now you're, you're invested. Now you're like, I would do this for free kind of thing. The fact that we can make money on it is bonus versus, Hey, Kyle, there's this big opportunity in this established market and it's going to take this much cap. Like, oh my God, kill me. Like, I don't, I just don't care how big that opportunity is right. because it doesn't align with what I want to do. And like, that's like the sure. you know, business versus personal kind of take on it. But if, if you are actually excited about it, you're going to have so much more success. Yeah, it's good. I think you guys are bang on with that. What I'm interested in is, I suppose, because I'm a person that loves to theorize about stuff, like like I get excited about ideas and abstract concepts and how they collide with reality and sometimes make sense of reality. And in this case, the star principle is the thing that springs to mind, which is that if you can somehow get involved in a business that is in the early stages of something that is about to go up that S-curve, so you're an early adopter, then, you know, it's a star business. It's a Boston Consulting route, which goes back to the 60s. It's not new thinking, but it's still underused by people in some ways. Now, to interact, to cross that over with what you guys were saying, Jason and Chris, I think you're right that personality is critical. What Richard Koch did, he's the guy who wrote the star principle and applied it to make himself very, very rich. He's not a an entrepreneur so much as an investor. So he was not the person getting excited about creating Betfair, for example, and nerding out about it. He was a person who spotted somebody else's talent and ability. So he was a kind of a version of a Gen 2, to, to use your phrase, Jason. So that's interesting to me that, you know, sometimes the market dynamics of this S-curve and your personality can interact in interesting ways. In other words, you can be taking advantage of the early mover thing, even if it's not your natural creative personality type. As long as you hook up with the right personality, who is that kind of person? So I like, you know, I would definitely invest in whatever Chris Green's having and, you know, getting excited about next because you're very, very good at spotting these trends. And I've had you on the podcast talking about various things like the merch by Amazon when it was new. And so 
if you can find the right partners, it enables you to participate in that, even if it's not your natural, you're not a first generation person, if you like. Yeah, totally agree. I think the thing that irritates me to some degree as I watch people's market behavior is when they're cloners, but they act like they're the originalist. That to mm. me is such a, just like, come that's on, a, man. That's an yeah. turn and you know, it's funny because a lot of them think that they're duping newbies or something like that, or they just, they just maybe, I don't know, in their brain, they, they kind of were like their, their egoic need forces them to say that they're the first, the best, the original, the, what they, you know, and then you just like, no, come on, don't do what, why do that as a positioning statement? If you know you're a cloner, don't lean into being, you know, the, the creator of something, all that. So yeah, I, to me, that's kind of always funny. And cause then there are people who like, you know, Chris, obviously like created the phrase arbitrage <laughs> in the e-commerce context mm-hmm. and, and you know, he, but he won't be out there nowadays, basically like in the position of trying to be the gen five, gen six marketer with the big, huge company. Other people will have taken that spot. But anyway, so it's just kind of funny to observe people's behavior in it all and kind of what their ego does in the process and all that. So there's this weird menu in the world to be creative. Now, I get this as a person that's naturally creative. My response to a problem is to create more stuff, but that's not necessarily a wise response or business like in all cases. And so I think people should own being good at operations and at scaling. Like Mm -hmm. to your point, Chris, the flip side of being excited about retail arbitrage as a first mover or much by Amazon and the other things I've, I've seen you, you've infused me about over the years is that maybe somebody else gets to, to your point, Kyle gets to be at the top of the S curve and make the big money. And if you can partner as a sort of first generation creative, you know, leading edge type person with somebody who's a bit more ploddy and willing to do the stuff that makes you want to mm-hmm. put your eyes out there, Chris, with the SOPs and stuff. That could be a beautiful thing if it can be engineered, because then you will get to benefit for longer and financially bigger than if right. you're just constantly creating and then letting somebody else monetize it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about the probably the greatest first mover advantage company out there in terms of innovation and expanding into multiple different niches. And that's Amazon, right? Like for its online bookstore, what if Amazon said, Hey, you know what? We got this bookstore thing locked down. Let's just stick here. Right. Like we're early, let's just make this our, our business model. But that's not what they did, right? Like they went from a bookstore to the everything store, then really built out the tech piece to support that. And they're like, hey, we could actually sell this as AWS. And now they power, you know, like a third of the internet or more. So I think it's interesting. So they're literally stacking other new niches and things that they've seen, you know, and adding more things while they're still growing and sort of taking those products to maturity, but they're also quick to kill things, right? Like if it's not working, like, you know, they're, they're done with it and there's, they've killed off plenty of programs. So I think having sort of the early creative energy in your business, no matter what scale you're at, no matter what niche is really, really important, whether that's you as the person who's doing that or somebody on your team that's helping to drive that. I think it's, it's important to have that level of energy in your business because if it's not, you're going to, I think, wither on the vine and die eventually. Yeah, I will go back to me frequently about just knowing who you are and not trying yeah. to like just fit yourself in and be like, oh, I saw Jeff Bezos do this, or I saw right. a famous person do that. I want to, like, who cares? You know, and I think of right. examples where like very successful, like if you follow the entrepreneur space, like entrepreneur type celebrity kind of, kind of people, they start a business, it's successful, and then they leave. 
And I frequently, like my first reaction is like, well, why did they leave? They like built this big, mm -hmm. like, oh, it's because they didn't want to run a company. They wanted to yeah. build a company. They wanted to yeah. innovate. And saw it's that challenge that they're attracted to. And they're happy to hand it off to someone who's like, please, please let me run this because I am good at running things. I would love to run it. I know how to run it. And that's just such a different personality type. And it's not that mm -hmm. one is right or wrong. It's just like, you have to know who you are, what you're good at, what your goals are. And there are going to be bigger financial incentives for some opportunities than for others. And often being the first mover is not the biggest financial opportunity. Like right. from, in my experience, it's certainly not, but it's, to me, it's much more rewarding. It's more. It has potentially more upside down the road, but you can be a lot happier doing something that you actually like and enjoy. And I would make the case that you can use the internet and social media to help a ton of people and make money along the way where you're like, this is like, this is great. But when people, I see people chase the bigger opportunities, so there's more money. I can make this much money. It's like, you can make more money, but from all the, like the wealthy people that I know, the money is not the happiness thing. Now the money, yeah. don't get me wrong. Money will solve your money problems. Okay. So if you have money problems, yes, money will solve those problems. Other types of problems, the money's not going to solve that. So make enough money yeah. to where you don't have money problems and then figure out what you want to do. If well, it's more money, huge, great. Go after it. Yeah. It's a huge presumption that a V1 founder could actually take it to maturity. I yeah. mean, I always remember the story of Rob Callen, who founded Etsy and the, at the point, and he's an artist. I mean, an artistic and, he made an, an environment for artists to be profitable and made something that was really, really like, who knew Etsy would, would last and become a thing. It was like a crap site, you know, but by the time it went public, he owned nothing like less than 1% or so like some literal nothing rounding error amount because he, over time, like he wasn't the guy, he wasn't the, you know, like Darth Vader type, not to pick a billionaire at the moment, but just, he wasn't the guy who, you know, he is an artist. He wasn't the business guy who was going to control it until it was a billion dollar, trillion dollar, whatever, whatever, you know? So it's a huge presumption to think an artist yeah. could get themselves there anyway, because frequently they'll, they won't, they'll just quit out of frustration. They'll give it away. They'll get tired and move on. Their entrepreneurial interests will kick in and, you know, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll want out. It reminds me of a brain and Larry Page from Google, like they were early on, you know, that co-CEOs and it was all very much like, yeah, we're going to grow this thing. And then, you know, they brought in Eric Schmidt, who was a, a adult. Yeah. Adult. He was like, he would, but he was also an experienced Silicon Valley CEO, right. Yeah. To really put in all the business processes that they need. And they built off of those business processes, what yeah. Google is today. Right. And, yeah. you know, that's exactly the point. I see too many people that don't want to give up control. And I, I know what that feels like. Right. So yeah. when you start something, it's kind of like your baby, like you're a hundred percent owner. Cause you can certainly start and just buy yourself these days. And then it's like, well, you can give up control or, or you can make one. Right. But like, it's, yeah. you're not going to be able to do both. And my co-founder at, at skin power, like he told me that very early on, look, you can have money or, or you can, you can own the company or you, or you can, I forget what I'm trying to say, you can have control or you can grow. Right. Kind of yeah. Um, yeah, but you, no. you can't really have, and you got to be okay with that. And I think so many times, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard for, especially kind of the early, the entrepreneur, the solopreneur, like the first mover to be like, yeah, I'm going to give up control. I'm going to trust someone else can, mm -hmm. can do this. Maybe someone else actually has this vision then that I have. And it's when you internalize, it's like, no, only I can do this. Only I can write this book. Only I can make mm -hmm. this app. Only I can do this webinar. It's like, no, I don't, someone else can, but you've got to yeah. trust that process. And that's a very different kind of mindset and different than I'll just do it all myself. And everybody tells me I'm great. Obviously it, it's just yeah. different until someone goes through it themselves. 
it's really hard to be like, okay, I'm just going to take Jason Bob's advice. Like, no, it's going to be hard to take someone else's advice. But once you go through it, you're like, oh yeah, Jason was right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. If that's how you have to learn a lesson, that's how you have to learn a lesson. For sure. There was a, I, there was a, an interview that I heard, or it was a podcast. It was basically this guy who was a multi, multi-millionaire. He couldn't even have been a billionaire. And they're asking him sort of like, what was the biggest breakthrough moments, you know, in your career and what you were dating, building your businesses? And he's like, well, honestly, the biggest one is when I actually brought in a new CEO. And, and that was the biggest thing. He's like, but here's the thing is that the business took off and grew, but they made decisions that I didn't agree with, but I still trusted them to, you know, do what they're going to do. And they turned out to be right. I would have been wrong. And he's like, that was the biggest breakthrough in terms of their growth of the business was following with that the CEO that I put in place. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's super interesting. You got to know who you are. Right. Well, I'm going to violently change topic here, except it's kind of about control. I guess that the world gave up control for making stuff to China quite a long time ago in some ways. And certainly Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon have been instrumental in bringing a lot of goods direct out of the, or fairly directly, sometimes via third party sellers from China to US. But what strikes me more and more is a few bits of news and a few statistics around which seem to be pointing to some kind of crisis to me, which is that number one, there's never been so many exports from China. It's kind of moving on from COVID now. So the factories are starting to hum again. But number two, US policy is very, very clearly trending in one direction. I don't think it matters who you voted for in the next general next election for president, you're going to get a China hawk of some description. And so TikTok is, for example, in the crosshairs right now, I believe that the TikTok, TikTok CEO is about to be called as Congress in late March. So, you know, a couple of weeks at the time of recording, and they may actually ban TikTok in the US, which would be huge news for anyone who's built a platform on that. So that implies concentration risk is a, an overarching theme here. And then the other one is that, you know, if China supplies lethal aid to the Russians in the Ukraine war, which looks quite likely because they've got, they've lost any kind of judgment at the top of the Chinese leadership by the looks of it, then it's quite possible that US will sanction China, which will basically change the entire world economy, not least if you import from China, which you probably do if you import into the US or into Europe. So these are big movements, but I think they're coming to a head pretty much yeah. now. So I'm interested to know what everyone thinks we should do about this. And, you know, am I about, about right here? And if so, what should we even begin to do about this stuff? Deep water. You want me to go first? Yeah. So I listened to the All In podcast and they were just talking about TikTok. Shamath Palihapitiya was talking about it. And then Brad Gershner is, was their bestie guestie this last week. And he's a shareholder, original kind of investor in TikTok or ByteDance. And the interesting piece they pointed out was if it was banned in the US, it would represent, I think, three billion out of like a hundred billion dollars of their revenues. So from the corporate point of view, it wouldn't actually, I mean, obviously that's a bad thing. It, you know, cuts off the U.S. market, but it wouldn't be catastrophic per se. Their advice was nonetheless liquidate your position in the company if you're an investor. But, but I think what you're describing to me is a version of the future that could play out. I'm not sure it will. I'm not sure we'll get a hawk, China hawk as a next president. We could get someone who's backed by tists at the highest level, and they would prefer to have not a war, but a financial relationship and keep the wheels of commerce going. But I'll, I would just say this, if that version of the future played out the way you're describing, 
then I think you would end up in the same position you have had in the early month of COVID, the early months of COVID, which was, it was like, I described it to my friend, Ron, who ran a, he runs a Dairy Queen restaurant. He owns it and he's had it for 30 years. I said a million bullets were fired at the U.S. economy. And the one that hit you was a silver bullet or like, like a good bullet, like not a bad bullet because his drive-through traffic went through like insane. And he, you know, he made like way more money because drive-through and, but many businesses were wiped out. Many restaurants were wiped out, but others really benefited. And I think if that type of decoupling did happen with the China economy, you would see a ton of unfortunate business closures and people, for example, like you mentioned, who have made a platform on TikTok and have monetized it, they would be vaporized in that kind of thing. But you'd see other people's businesses who would be like, the, you know, happy days are here again. My revenues just doubled because, you know, mm-hmm. some of my competitors got eliminated and I'm the only game in town in my niche or whatever. So I think it'll create a real divergence of winners and losers if that happened. And, and it'd be interesting to see a supply chain from China would be a bad operating thesis if that did happen, you know? So yeah, that's my two cents. I think it will create, but I do think it'll create winners as well. You know? Yeah, it would definitely drive up costs, right? Inflation would continue to expand because we have benefited from the long-term cheap manufacturing that comes out of China in terms of, of price. I don't know, like th- a couple of things that you layered in there, right? One was, you know, what politically does that look like? You know, who's going to be in there? I think that everybody is sort of seeing China as a political competitor, depending on how far they want to take it. You know, do they see it as China as an enemy? Hopefully that's not going to be the case and they can look at it as a, as a competitor geopolitically. The other thing that I think is interesting, as you said, is, you know, does China offer lethal aid to, you know, Russia in the Ukraine war? If that occurs, I think Europe for sure is going to sanction, but I don't, it, it may not be the same level of sanctions that you saw, you know, the West apply to Russia or it's across the board it would probably be much more strategic and surgical in terms of the sanctions that were applied. But any sanctions would be escalatory and you'd probably see going back and forth or, or across the board, across the Pacific, you know, they're going to sanction other things and all. And, you know, that's how it works. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it'd be really interesting to see how that played out, but it definitely could have a, a negative short-term impact on the economy. But long-term, I think what you're going to continue to see is more of a, of a a shift to move manufacturing to different countries, maybe more geopolitical friendly countries. It could be a big win for India, honestly. India has sort of walked this neutral line between the US and China and Russia, and they kind of want to see themselves there. But I think that you ask them specifically, they would probably like to lean more in their relationship with the US, but that's even a more tenuous thing. But they have a lot of production capacity. It's untapped. They're kind of like China was, you know, a few years ago. So I think they might end up being an interesting winner if if manufacturing does shift out of China. Well, I'm just going to try and be optimistic because I am not a geopolitical, international government, any of that stuff. But from what I've seen, people generally end up working things out and getting along. Supply and demand, I, I remind people of this constantly, supply and demand is constant, right? So if supply dries up somewhere, the demand isn't gone. It's still there and it'll be filled 
with supply from somewhere else in price. Prices will go up, prices will go down, but in general, you know, buyers and sellers don't really care about a lot of this stuff. And the people who want to sell, including the sellers in China shipping out containers, they want to sell if they want to ship containers. They don't care what the government's doing. They don't care what our government's doing. They just want to sell stuff. People over here just want to buy stuff. And, you know, I would have optimistic confidence that that's just going to kind of work itself out. It kind of worked itself out through COVID, through, you know, obstacles and complications and all these things. And yeah, prices went up, prices came down, you know, things were sold out, things were hard to get, but I don't recall it. Maybe I'm, I got a different version of history in my head. Like it wasn't that bad to where like, oh my gosh, we haven't had this in years or the price on this is 1000 times what it used to be. Cause when it gets to that point, no one's, no one's going to buy it. Like the, the market will adjust and shift and instead of buying something for a hundred thousand times market, you're going to buy something else. And I don't know. It, it, history serves it. My memory serves it correctly. It, it all kind of worked out without all of a sudden everybody hates a complete a, entire country and the government and the people and all this stuff. Like, I think people should also separate the government from people. I, I know a lot of people in Russia who are not thrilled with what's going on, but they don't have a lot of options. Sure. And it, it was, you know, short anecdotal story. One of my Russian programmers messaged me after the Russian war started. He's like, Hey, do you still want to work with me? And I'm like, why wouldn't I want to work with you? He's like, well, because my country is doing this. He wouldn't want to do it. You know, he, he was completely against it, but he thought just because he was Russian, all of a sudden I want nothing personally to do with anything Russian. And I had to explain to him, no, that's the case. You know, we were able to separate the government. And you know, there's a lot of big stuff going on, but the people who are in charge of people with the power, I don't believe are evil. I don't believe only have personal self-interest in mind. I do believe they want some best for, for everybody. And hopefully, hopefully it plays out. I will tell. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that you're right. The business people just want to make money and ordinary people don't necessarily endorse the views of their governments. And uh, yeah, that's certainly, I, I just, London is absolutely a ton of, of Russians here. And I think they're kind of keeping their heads down. I, I don't know. It, it's not a thing for me, but I'm just thinking that at a certain point, politics starts to re-enter the business fray. If it becomes, for example, the tariffs that got imposed in whatever it was, 2016 and onwards with goods coming from China to US. That's not something anyone who's saying, selling or buying has any control over. That's simply imposed from above. And I think that we're getting back to the era where that may happen. You may be right. I mean, maybe you're more pessimistic than you guys. The other interesting thing, of course, and I'm kind of on the outsider here on the other side of the pond is that I think the other alternative supplier is America. Apparently America already has the cheapest electricity in the world. Thanks to the shell gas revolution and shell oil and gas. You have, you know, so much gas there that you were burning it off as waste products until five minutes ago, apparently in many places. And the labor costs in America aren't going down, but in they're shooting up at them China because they have really demographic issues. You know, I don't have any young people. So I would be amazed if, if America doesn't become the preferred supplier for a lot of American goods. And then of course there's Mexico. I don't know if anyone has an experience in Mexico. I've got one client who did a bit of sourcing in Mexico and said it was pretty difficult to work around the corruption and the, you know, the quality control issues, but. It's interesting that there, as you say, Chris, if there's demand, there will be supply. The question that interests me partly is where is that supply coming from? People buy stuff, price sell stuff, you know, country of origin. In my experience as you know, former sales rep, it's really hard to sell country of origin. Even at the same, if it's a dollar cheaper, they don't care if it's made in Mexico or China or India, it's a dollar cheaper. And they're going to buy it. It's really, you know, there are people who will go out of their way and pay more to buy something made in America. And if the quality's there, they could to, to justify an increased price. Mm -hmm. But an apples to apples, 
in my experience, it's very common to talk the talk of wanting to buy it. <laughs> it's really, really hard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Unless the American one is also cheaper. Yeah. But yeah. No question, things can change. We can promote buying American and the benefits of buying American. And I, I, I don't think it's going to be mind, that but it's a possible. tough one. Sorry. I, I don't think it's going to be led so much by the fact that people want to buy American and are willing to pay them more, a dollar more because on Amazon, like almost certainly they have to, it's the biggest price, price comparison site. But I think because I have to, exactly. Because if China has been banned from importing stuff, which sounds like a nuclear thing, but if you'd said to me in 2014 or 2013, Britain's going to exit the European Union and Trump is, or any American president is going to impose a 45% tariff rate on stuff coming from China. Um, I don't think there would have been a very serious audience for either of those being a true prediction, but it was true to just two years later. So I don't know. I hope you're right. And I hope that I'm not seeing stuff coming. I hope I'm, I'm wrong, but you know, <laughs> let's see. It will emerge over the next. Veteran e-commerce operators know that net profit is the vital lifeblood of a business. Better a small and profitable business than a large one that earns no money. The Profit Habits Workbook is designed to give you 17 actionable, specific and proven profit-taking actions. You can implement them at your own pace and let the power of this trusted framework revolutionize your company. The Profit Habits Workbook makes profit improvement a fast and efficient achievement. For a limited time, we are now sharing this resource with our listeners completely free with no strings attached. To download your 60-page workbook and begin your journey to a more profitable business today, just visit theecommerceleader.com forward slash profit habits. Wow. Pessimist versus well, it's, negative. It's a different point that you've made. Optimist. You know, if, if there is no Chinese alternative or internationally made alternative, mm-hmm. then yes, people will buy American, but they're not buying American because yeah. they want to buy American. They're buying right. American because it's the only one on the shelf. Yeah, oh, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So there's there's that. And like, if that's the case and it's an affordable price, it's a quality product, I don't think people care because in my experience, people don't really care where it comes from. As long as it works, it's not going to give my child cancer and I can afford it. Right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We're really not that thing. We're really not scrolling yeah. down looking for a right. country of origin on Amazon. Yeah. No, the reality is that the reality yeah. is that demand creates supply. And mm-hmm. as soon as something's not available from China, there's going to be a Vietnamese or Korean mm-hmm. or Indian supplier that's like, I can fill that, you know, that mm-hmm. need, that demand. Alternates and substitutes are a part of a huge economy. And I don't, even if America becomes more isolationist in, in a way, we're still, we have still huge trade partners with South Korea and Vietnam and there's, you know, India, there's tons of supply sources. Mexico is problematic for the reasons you mentioned, but it's obviously so close to home. You know, there, I mean, there's alternatives and those will emerge. I, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurialism is such a fast paced environment these days. Mm-hmm. It, it amazes me how quickly people can monetize now. You just, you don't see opportunities languishing around very often. Right. You know, as soon as you see something that's obvious, Pretty soon you see somebody who's figured out how to beautifully mm-hmm. present it. And here it is. It's the, the, the cool thing. And just when you thought, Hey, this is a thing. Somebody's already been six months or a year ahead of you yeah. and getting it ready, you know, well, for sure. I think to me, the biggest takeaway from this conversation as a, someone who imports from China is you need to have a business continuity plan. Like what is the plan of action? If something happens to your supply chain in China, are you thinking about, you know, 
locate do you know how to locate suppliers outside of china like that's a skill set that you should be developing <laughs> you know that's a network that you should be working on is make sure you have a plan of action in place you know what you know what you do make, only make, make digital course. products oh, oh cool. For, of course print on the bands it's only digital products yeah. but kind of, if i honestly if i were you i would Easily, I would get ahead of this with some blog articles, some LinkedIn articles, and putting something out there to be like, hey, just in case your primary supplier dries up, China or otherwise, what what can you do to preemptively be ready in case that happens? And just market it under business preparedness. And all of a sudden, if something like this happens, you're going to have content that's been out there for months. And all of a sudden, they're going to come to you and you be like, yes, I can help you with that. Here, I've got some pre-recorded material. I do have a a, a mastermind type group, or like wh- whatever it might be, whether you want to monetize it or not. But it, that many people are going to potentially go down that road have something there ready for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, it's going to affect a lot of people. The, it's the business prepper niche. It is, absolutely. That's a great name for it. Yeah, yeah I yeah. like that. And that's pretty, <laughs> I like him on I Prepertage Treppers. Prep, prep, oh, prep, 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 so I came on your, one of your many challenge type things ages ago, Kyle, I remember talking to you, did a presentation on this very title topic. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, there's definitely, you sound like a, you know, pessimistic old guy until suddenly it hits and actually say you could look like a bit of a predictive genius if it does, but we ought to move on. So let's see what's cooking in the mind of Jason today. What's going on with you? Man, I got so many irons in the fire. What do you want to talk about guys? I'll tell you a few topics that are top of mind for me. Tesla's investor day was huge. That's my number one, you know, kind of stock that I like. AI is literally like a game changer in so many ways. I, that's a topic number two. I also, we got an offer that had a very interesting phrase in it. Somebody wanted to buy Pixie Fair off of us. And the phrase is you're a founder of a top 1% Shopify store that will now receive a cash bonus on top of your offer price at closing. That caught my attention. I was like, that's interesting. I'm the founder of a top 1% Shopify store. So what do you guys want to talk about? I don't care. Is it, is it AI? Is that the thing we have to talk about? Because Let's talk about Pixie Fair, because it feels like AI is being talked about by everyone so much that since you and I actually did a relatively early deep dive on that relative to what was out there, Jason, and then suddenly yeah. everything I've heard on any e-commerce podcast since has been about AI. So yeah, personally, yeah. I'd be interested to hearing about your offer. AI is too big. We'll talk about that another day. Excellent. Yeah. Hey folks, thank you for listening to another episode of the e-commerce leader as ever with our panel discussions, we had wide ranging topics today. So the two hot ones were the S curve or stepping in front of demand versus creating demand. Very interesting. I think the conclusion of the panel seems to have been really, it depends on who you are. And uh, you aren't necessarily also being able to take it from the beginning to the end. Um, and Chris's final point, being willing to give up control in order to make money. A surprisingly hard thing to persuade entrepreneurs to do. I'm the same. My staff, um, my clients rather, definitely similar. Um, and then my particular book there, it, am I going to be right that there's some big China-USD coupling going on? Or, you know, am I exaggerating? I hope that I'm exaggerating. The panel seemed a bit more optimistic in general than I was. Um, so we'll see how this pans out. But certainly um, Kyle's point of having a business continuity plan, either which way to hedge against significant but not certain risk uh, is absolutely 
um, I think the most common sense wrap up for this. So having a plan, can you import from somewhere else in case China is no longer a practical option for you? And if so, you know, where is that? And do you have a plan? Do you have contacts? Do you have, um, something that can be spun up if it need to be? So I hope that was a thought provoking episode. Uh, we enjoy having these chats with each other. It's always good fun. And we hope that you find it good fun and most importantly, stimulating you as well to become the best e-commerce leader you can be. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on your nearest podcast. We seem to be whipping up the charts on Spotify at the moment in terms of the subscribers. So do come and join us there or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that suits you. And thanks so much for listening to the e-commerce leader. Veteran e-commerce operators know that net profit is the vital lifeblood of a business. Better a small and profitable business than a large one that earns no money. The Profit Habits Workbook is designed to give you 17 actionable, specific and proven profit-taking actions. You can implement them at your own pace and let the power of this trusted framework revolutionize your company. The Profit Habits Workbook makes profit improvement a fast and efficient achievement. For a limited time, we are now sharing this resource with our listeners completely free with no strings attached. To download your 60-page workbook and begin your journey to a more profitable business today, just visit theecommerceleader.com forward slash profit habits.